I want to share a few thoughts with you this morning. I want you to think for just a second as we get started here about your morning this morning. I want you to think about if typical person, you're laying in bed this morning and at some point you wake up, right? You wake up, you maybe you get up and you maybe you stroll into the bathroom and get you a sip of water or something like that. Maybe you walk into the kitchen and you open up the refrigerator door. Maybe you get you a glass of juice or something like that. Maybe you get something out and you eat breakfast and then you maybe, uh, you know, turn on the TV, watch a little TV, maybe you pick your phone up and you look through some articles on your phone or maybe a newspaper or something like that. Maybe you do that for a little bit and maybe you talk to your family or you, you go outside and you do a few chores or, you know, everybody's a little bit different. And then you start to get ready, you go into your bathroom and maybe you take a shower, take a bath or something. Then you go into your closet, you pick some clothes out and you get ready for church and uh, hopefully you spend some time in prayer. And then you get in your vehicle and you uh, drive to church and you park your vehicle, you get out and you come into church. And that's a pretty typical morning, right? That most all of us had some some version of that we all experienced this morning. And what I want you to think about for just a few minutes is I want you to think about all the things that were working in order for that very normal day to happen thus far. All right, you're laying in bed this morning, right? Well, the fact that your mattress and box spring and your, your headboard and the footboard were not laying in shambles and falling down to the floor lets you know that there are some screws and some nails and some fasteners that are working to hold that together, right? Did you think about that this morning? No, you didn't think about that. When you rolled over and you looked at your alarm clock, did you think about the electricity working or the fact that that clock was working? Or did you just look at it and go on about your business? When you got up and you went into uh, the bathroom to get a sip of water, did you think about the systems of your body working? Did you think that uh, my brain is firing impulses to my muscles, telling my muscles and ligaments and joints to move and carry my body from point A to point B? Did you think about those things? When you hit that faucet to get you a cup of water, did you think about your plumbing working? What about when you strolled into the, uh, to the kitchen and you opened up the door to the refrigerator, did you think about the refrigeration and the cooling systems of that refrigerator working? Or did you just open it and reach in and grab the juice and pour you a cup of juice? Did you think about when you got into your car? Did you think about the ignition working when you turned it? The battery firing to start up that motor? Did you think about the starter and the fuel pump? Did you think about the braking system as you drove or your transmission? Did you think about the stoplights that if you had to pass any that turned red, yellow, green and guided you to where you wanted to be? Are you thinking about the nails and the screws that are holding that pew together? Are you thinking about the belt that is holding your pants up if you have one? Chances are you didn't really think about any of those things, did you? When do you start thinking about those things? when they stop working, right? That's when you start thinking about them. You wake up in the middle of the night having no thought to your air conditioning working until it stops working. 
You don't think at all about the plumbing system in your house and the fact that you have running water until you turn that faucet and nothing comes out. Or you walk over and you flip a switch to cut the lights on and all of a sudden there are no lights and you have no power. When you go in and put the key in the ignition and you turn the ignition, you never think about your battery until the battery is dead. You don't think about how healthy your systems are in your body till you roll out of bed and you start stumbling to the bathroom and your ankle is hurting terribly. How many of you thought about your ankle unless it's hurting you? You don't. But when things stop working, they get your attention, right? Now, what I want you to think about this morning is that we serve a God who is working. We serve a God who is working whether you acknowledge that or not. Now, God is not a God who is very far removed from us. He is not a God that is distant from us. God is a God who is involved in the lives of his people and he is working. We call that providence. We call that divine intervention. That there is a God who sits in heaven who created the earth, the seas, the land. He created man. He created the animals. He is timeless. And he created a family for himself and he works with that family. He intervenes in the lives of that family. Now, you can take that too far. We said it many times up here. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Now, you can take God working too far. And again, as Brother Tim has said before, if you're not ready to quote Romans 8, 29 and 30, don't bother quoting Romans 8, 28, because they all go together. You can't say that I have gone out and committed all types of revelry and sinned against God and that was part of his plan. You cannot go out and cheat on your wife or commit fornication and say that is all part of God working in my life, divinely intervening in my life. That is your sin and it is going against what the Lord has told us to do. So you can take God working too far, and that's easy to prove in the Bible, but that's another sermon for another time. But you can go too far the other way and say God is a God that never works. You can go and say God is just a God who created and stood back and is just letting whatever happens happen and fate is going to be fate. You can take it too far that way. But what you can't deny is that God is a God who loves his people, And he divinely intervenes and works in their lives. And obviously you know where I'm going with this. Oftentimes we never recognize it until what? Until he stops. And when God stops working, it gets our attention faster than an air conditioning unit that's broken. Faster than a car battery that's not working. Faster than an ankle or a joint in your body that's not working. You see, God knows how to get the attention of his people. Just like the battery in your car can get your attention when it's not working, God can get our attention. And sometimes he does that by ceasing or reducing how much he works in our lives. Now, the devil knows that God is a God that works in the lives of his people. Did you know that? The devil knows that because he's talking to the Lord in Job, the first chapter, 
And he says to the Lord, he says, speaking of Job, he says, has thou not put a hedge of protection around him and around his house and around all that he has? Job was a very a man that prospered. Job had a lot of stuff. And I wonder if day by day by day, if Job thought very much about the evil forces that wanted to destroy him. And that God had limited those forces, not allowing them to come in and touch Job. Have you thought about that? Do you realize that if the powers of darkness had their way, you would be exponentially worse off than you are right now? Amen. And the fact that you aren't exponentially worse off than you are right now is proof positive that God is providentially working in the lives of his people, holding back and limiting the powers of darkness. And Satan knew that with Job. He says, I can't get in there to Job. I can't get in there and fool with Job because you've put a hedge of protection around it. So the devil knows very well that God works in the lives of his people. Let's look at just a few examples. What about, you know, Israel in the wilderness? Israel is wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter, you find this in the fifth verse. The Lord says to them, it says, for 40 years, I led you in the wilderness and your shoes did not wax old, neither did your clothes wax old upon you. Think about that for a second. Does anybody in here right now have a pair of shoes on that's 40 years old? If I had a pair of shoes on that I'd had for 40 years, they would be this big because I was one year old when I got them. 40 years old. Shoes don't last that long. Clothes typically don't last that long if you're wearing them repeatedly. But the Lord loves his people. And even though they're wandering in 40 years because of unbelief, he works in their lives and he sustains their shoes and their clothes. And that takes one more burden off of them than they ought, that they, when they've already got uh, you know, innumerable ones upon them. You see, God works in the lives of his people. I wonder, what is he doing in your life right now that you don't recognize that he's doing? And you say, oh, I've got all these burdens on me. Oh, my goodness. But look at what could be on you. Amen. And he's got those things at bay. And he's letting your shoes and your clothes, figuratively speaking, continue and continue so you don't have that extra burden. The devil comes at you and bam, he hits a hedge and he cannot get to you to do what he really wants to do to you. Because the Lord loves his people and he's working in their lives, right? What about the widow? The widow of Sarepta. You can read about that in 1 Kings. She's going out in a time of famine and her and her son are about to starve to death. They're to the point they've got one more meal. And she's got, the Bible says she's got a cup, I mean a handful of flour, probably about a cup. And she's got a little bit of oil in her cruise and she's fixing to go get two sticks as she tells Elijah, two sticks and I'm going to make a little cake for my son and myself, and then we're going to die. And she has an interaction with Elijah there, and she makes him one first, and he tells her that the Lord says that that barrel's not going to go empty and that cruise of oil is not going to go empty. And day after day after day after day, she went in there and she scooped one more handful out until the famine was over. That, were, that was not elves running in there. That was not hobbits. That was not Tinkerbell the fairy. 
That was the spirit of God working in the lives of his people, continuing to keep the flour and the meal and all there. You think about these are some of my favorite examples. I want you to think about. You can read about this one in Second Kings, the seventh chapter. I'm going to flip over there for just a second because there's some things in here. I don't want to make sure I want to make sure I don't forget. Second Kings, the seventh chapter. This is a time when. The armies of Syria have encamped around the people of Israel. Second Kings, the seventh chapter. There's a wicked man, a wicked king named Ben-Hadad that is in charge of the armies of Syria. And they've camped around the Israelites and they've cut off all their supplies and they are starving to death. They are in a terrible, terrible situation. And Elisha, the Lord says to Elisha, And speaks to them. And Elisha says this to a starving group of Israelites who have nothing. Their pantries have been totally depleted and they're at the brink of death. And this is what Elisha says to them. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. That means we will have an abundance. Then a Lord, this is a little L, this is just a man. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? You see what he's saying? He's thinking logically. He is not thinking about the Lord working in the lives of his people. He's saying we have nothing. It would take months on end of bringing supplies in and trading imports, export to get us back where we needed to be. And maybe if the Lord just opened up a window in heaven and dropped all this on us, upon us, maybe that would be true. And then Elisha says, and he said, behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou sh- but shall not eat thereof. Sounds a whole lot like what the Lord told the spies who went into the promised land and came back whining, Right. You're not going to get to see it. I mean, you may see it, but you're not going to get to experience it. Now, I'm for the sake of time. I'm going to give you the the quick version of this. In the camp of the of the Syrians that are uh, uh, ready to come in and invade the Israelites who have cut off all of their supplies. They're sitting around one night and it says, for the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Why? Because God made them hear a noise. Here you have these starving Israelites who have no chance. And sometime in the night, this massive, destructive army hears a noise and they leave everything and flee. Not only do they leave everything and flee, what little they took, you read about it, they stroll it on the sides of the roads. Everything that was worth anything, everything that was valuable to them, they leave and they're just tossing it. This sword and this shield is slowing me down. I'm getting rid of it. This sack of food I brought is slowing me down. I'm getting rid of it. That must have been quite the noise. 
You know what I think is interesting? A couple verses, a couple chapters before that, Elisha's in his tent with his servant. And the servant wakes up, and I've, I've told you this account several times. The servant goes out, and he's stretching outside the tent. He's looking around, and he sees, them, he sees the, uh, the, the host of the Syrians camped about him. And he goes back in with his knees knocking. He tells Elisha, he says, you need to come see this. There's nothing we can do. And Elisha comes out of his tent, and he looks around, and he says, Lord, open his eyes. Speaking of the servant. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and there were chariots and horses of fire all up in the mountains surrounding the camp of the Syrians. And Elisha uh, says to him, says, there be more with us than there are with them. Shortly after that, we hear this account of where the Syrians heard a noise. I wonder if that noise was that army of chariots. You think about that? The army of chariots and armies of fire. Obviously, they make a sound so bad you leave everything. And so there are four lepers in the camp of Israel that say, you know what? We're either going to die here in Israel, I mean, with the Israelites, or we're going to die at the hand of the Syrians. Our best chance is to go to the Syrian camp, give ourselves to them, and maybe they'll let us live. But if we stay here, we're surely going to die. Well, these four lepers go into the camp of the Syrians, and they look around and they think, what in the world? Where is everybody? The Bible says their horses were still tied up. They didn't even take some of their horses. They left on foot. That's how afraid they were. And so they leave, uh, they've left and the lepers go in there and they come back. And as they're coming back, they see all the stuff strewn on the sides of the road. And they go back and tell the king of Israel, you need to come see what is available. And they bring the storehouse of that army back into Israel the next day, just like Elisha said they would. And the king, when he hears that the camp is gone. You know what the king doesn't think? Oh, the Lord works in the lives of his people. The king said, oh, they're hiding from us. They're hiding from us. We better be afraid. But the Lord loves his people and he works in the lives of his people. And this Israelite camp went from having nothing to having more than they probably ever had. They had all the weapons, all the horses, all the donkeys, all the food, all the clothes, all the money, and all the jewels of this camp that they were certain was going to destroy them. Now, what about King Sinatra of the Assyrians? There's a time when he's camped around the Israelites as well, and he's on a rampage, and he's destroying every nation he comes to. And Israel is next in line, and he's taunting them and mocking them, saying, hey, I've destroyed all these nations, and you're next, pal. He's writing letters to them. You're next. And King Hezekiah is terrified and he starts to pray to the Lord. And there comes a night where they don't hear uh, an army of chariots of fire and flee. But the Lord sends an angel down. And that one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Why is that? Why is God keeping the flour and the oil in the widow's uh, in the widow's pots? Why is he sending noises to drive out armies? Why is he holding back um, Satan against Job? Why is he sending an angel to destroy 185,000? Why is he doing those things? Because he's a God that works Amen. in the lives of his people. I want you to think about Daniel for a second. When Daniel, 
goes against the decree and he prays publicly and openly to the Lord and they see him and the punishment for that was to be thrown into the lion's den and they throw Daniel into the lion's den. Do you know why that was a punishment? Do you know what hungry lions do? They weren't going down there feeding those lions five and six times a day. They were starving them to death probably. And when they threw something in there, it was a certainty that they were going to eat it. And they throw Daniel down into this lion's den. Let's flip over to Daniel for just a sec because I like what... Hezekiah says here, or what Daniel says, they throw Daniel down into the lion's den. And the next morning, King Darius, who was very much a fan of Daniel, comes back and they roll the stone away. And there sits Daniel, unharmed, sitting amongst a den of hungry lions. And Daniel says, my God hath sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths and they have not hurt me. My God hath sent his angel. Nebuchadnezzar says concerning Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire, he says there's one like the Son of God in there amongst them. And you know later that he says, Nebuchadnezzar says that the Lord sent his angel. You know who was in that fire? I believe it was Jesus Christ in that fire. Do you know who was in that lion's den? I think it was the same angel that stood in that fire. Now that might be a little presumptuous. But based on the language of the Bible, I believe Christ was sitting on on those rocks down there with Daniel. Putting a hedge up. And taking away the appetite of a hungry lion. Who by nature would have wanted to devour him. Now I want you to think about those things. How is God working? In our lives, that maybe we chalk it up to coincidence, maybe we chalk it up to good luck, or maybe there's just a that that there's so much going on around us in the unseen spiritual world that we just take for granted, like a car battery, like an air conditioner. Until what? Until it stops working, right? The Lord describes his church, and his people as a vineyard. You know, we sing the song, Here in the vineyard of my Lord, I love to live live and labor. Mark the 12th chapter, let me read this to you. This is a parable that the Lord speaks. And he says, and he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set what? Set a hedge about it. And digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to the husbandman husbandman, and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant and that he might receive from the husband of the fruit of the vineyard. This is a man who has planted a vineyard and he has gone into a far country and he is expecting something from his vineyard. Don't miss that part. This man is expecting something from his vineyard. And he sends a man into it to collect of the fruit. And it says, and they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And at, that, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. He is sending men into his vineyard to nourish his vineyard and to take care of his vineyard. And he's expecting something from them. And it says, 
Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son, but we know the parable that they didn't. They killed him. You see, this is a parable of the church. This is a parable of the Lord's vineyard. Did you know you are part of the Lord's vineyard as his child? Do you know that he has planted the church, the vineyard of the church, and that he has sent preachers and prophets from way back to nourish and to tend to that vineyard? He sent his son down on behalf of that vineyard. But what does he do? He expects something out of that vineyard, does he not? Now, let's read this. A very unsettling passage of Scripture. In Isaiah, the fifth chapter, concerning this vineyard. It says this, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. That is speaking of God's people. And he has planted that vineyard. And he expects something out of that vineyard. Have you ever planted an apple tree not expecting apples? Or a grapevine and not expected grapes? And it says, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. He fenced it. That means he put a hedge about it. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. He is looking for it to produce something. He is expecting this vineyard to produce something. He puts it in there. He plants it. He puts a tower in the middle of it. He digs a wine press. He puts a hedge of protection around it. And the Bible says then he looked upon it To see if it would bring forth grapes. That's what he wants out of this. And it said, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done to it? You see, as God's people, we have no excuse not to produce fruit. What more could he have done to his vineyard than what he has already done? Oh Lord, my circumstances are too hard. My life is too hard. I'm too distracted. Blah, 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 blah. That's why I'm the way I am, Lord. What more could have been done? To the vineyard of God, to the church of God, to the family of God than he has not already done. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Maybe that's a good title for the sermon, wild grapes. Wild grapes look like grapes, but they're not the grapes that were intended to be. Wild grapes are a, listen now, are a form of godliness. They look kind of like godliness. They're a form of godliness, but they deny truth. They deny power. There are a lot of churches across America, and I would include include primitive Baptist churches in some of those, that are producing wild grapes. There are a lot of God's people that are producing wild grapes. It is a form of godliness, and it looks churchy, it looks godly, it might look, smell, and taste godly. But it is not what God intended. It's wild grapes. And what does the Lord say? And now go to 
I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dig, but there shall come upon briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. God is a God that works. And oftentimes we don't recognize how much he works until he stops working in the lives of his people. Are you with me? That might be hard to hear. But brothers and sisters, we're in a time where we need to hear some hard things. Are you with me? God expects his vineyard to produce something. He wants it to produce the fruit that comes from him, not a form of it. But the fruit, the grapes that he intends it to bring. And listen, when God says, I will take away the hedge from my vineyard. Listen real close. When God says, I'm taking the hedge away from my vineyard. And he takes the hedge away. He does not have to command the wild boar to come in and trample the vineyard. The wild boar does it by nature. He doesn't have to command the birds to come in and sit on the vines and and pluck away all the grapes. The birds do it by their very nature. We want God standing on our walls holding back those things that would trample us. We want the Lord to build up hedges that are wide and tall and strong. But in order for us to have the Lord continue to bless us like that, he has got to look down and see some grapes, not wild grapes. And I don't know where this country, you ask me this, say, Luke, if you could say in one sentence, what is the problem with America? This is my one sentence on what the problem with America is. We have been blessed beyond what we are capable of handling. That's the problem with America. We have been blessed beyond what we are capable of handling. And we no longer think about the air conditioner and the battery and the plumbing and those things. We don't think about those things working. We just take them for granted. And we do not think about the Lord working in the lives of his people. We just take it for granted. And, and, and we say, okay, we, we go to church and we quote scripture and we put it on Facebook, but we kill our innocent. We act like we're all spiritual, but we love money more than we love our brother. We are so far removed in America from what the Lord intended a vineyard to be. And he is merciful and he is long suffering. He has kept those hedges up and he's kept those walls up and the powers of darkness are fighting and clawing to try to get in. And if we wanted to keep it that way, where the Lord is holding those things back for us, it is going to take massive repentance. And the Lord seeing some grapes. Now, I want you to think about your personal vineyard. What does he see? Does he see grapes or does he see wild grapes? Does he see godliness or does he see a pretending of godliness? Does he see a show of godliness like he said to Pharisees? Oh, you're super white on the outside, but inside you're dead men's bones. What about the vineyard of Bethlehem here? I trust he sees grapes. I trust that our state, we would see grapes and our nation, we would see grapes. But brothers and sisters, my heart has had a sense of alarm for quite some time that that's not what he's seeing. And there may come a day that the Lord says, 
I came and looked for something that was not there. And the long suffering of the Lord does come to an end. I do not want to for my mind to recognize the Lord simply because He quit working. I want to think about Him on a daily basis and pray to Him and beg Him for mercy and say, Lord, I don't I have no clue what you're holding back from myself, from my home, from my nation. But God, I trust that you are there, an unseen hand. And God, forgive me for ever doing anything to violate you that would even make it cross your mind that you need to take that away. Don't wait until the powers of darkness have swept into the vineyard before we recognize God. Because He is working. I want to serve a God who sends His angels into the camp of the Assyrians. I want to serve a God who shuts the mouths of the lions and who makes the flour and the oil continue to come forth. That's what I want. And if that's what I want and that's what you want, I pray that we'll have some grapes and that the Lord will look down even if the hedge of America shrinks down and it's nothing but around this building. Praise God for that. And I pray that that would be your prayer. That we may go forth from here for the rest of our lives and our children's lives saying that the Lord was merciful and kept the hedge up around our country and around our homes. I hope that that's been profitable to you. And forgive me for going a little long.